Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Picture Hawaii, blue skies, cool breeze, an average daytime winter temperature of 78 degrees. Would you want to live there? Turns out you're not alone. NIMBY, or not in my backyard. It's a phrase that's not unique to Hawaii, and experts are worried that it could be a massive barrier to solving our affordable housing crisis. As of December 2021, the median cost of a Honolulu home is just over a million dollars. That's a 22% bump from the year before. So it's probably safe to say that number has only gone up. According to Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii, skyrocketing home prices and the need for affordable housing isn't just a problem in his home state. But I think the change now is that it's not just San Francisco and Honolulu and New York City and a few and Seattle and a few other places that are experiencing a shortage of housing. It's every place across the country. And so this is a national issue, whether we like it or not. Last year, Schatz inserted a so-called YIMBY grant program into a massive house appropriations bill. That program is supposed to be rolled out in the coming months. YIMBY stands for Yes in My Backyard, in contrast to the perhaps better known NIMBY, or Not in My Backyard. Both terms refer to a city dweller's reaction to more urban development, especially high-density housing. It's an issue Democrats are really split on, especially Democrats who live in big cities. To me, one of the basic principles of the Democratic Party is if you ever achieve some level of um, financial uh, comfort, that you don't pull up the ladder behind you. And we just have to remind each other that it is one of the core values of the Democratic Party that if we're fortunate enough to get a house, that doesn't mean nobody else gets one. If we're fortunate enough to, to get a house, we need to understand we probably started in an apartment, we maybe even got some help from a family member, or we went deep into debt and it was hard. And we need to make it a little less hard for the next generation. Schatz's program sets aside $85 million for cities and suburbs that enact so-called fair housing policies, like rezoning for high-density housing, mixed-use developments, and donating vacant land. It's a very rare example of a federal program that's tackling fair housing. But will it succeed? I think people who want to see the federal government take a more serious role in breaking down these barriers argue that the federal government cannot just offer carrots. It has to propose sticks. Slate writer Henry Grabar recently spoke to Senator Schatz about his EMB program, and we asked, is it enough? The program is proposing carrots, and I, I asked the senator, I said, if the situation is so dire, then why not just tell them that we no longer consider it acceptable for a suburb to simply ban apartments from being built? And he said, basically, well, 
I don't have the votes for that. I think people who want the federal government to take a more serious role in breaking down these barriers say it's time for them to play hardball. Today on the show, the Yimby versus NIMBY battle goes to Congress. I'm Mary C. Curtis, in for Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Senator Brian Schatz's YIMBY grant program is coming in the middle of a dire housing crisis. Almost 80% of homes are now unaffordable for people earning the median income, up from 60% just two years ago. Slate's Henry Grabar spoke to Schatz about the YIMBY program, and he says at least two key factors are to blame. First, the pandemic. Henry says the reasons are complicated and no one understands them completely, but COVID sent housing prices soaring. Second, we simply aren't building enough homes of any kind. We are in a once-in-a-century home-building shortage. So every type of home, from single-family homes to apartments, we are building not nearly enough to keep up with the number of households that are being formed. And we are especially not building enough homes in the places where housing is most expensive. And the most recent estimate I saw of just how severe this problem has become was that the country was short about 4 million homes. So I know you may look out your window and see a crane and think, well, my city's changed beyond recognition. And maybe that is what it looks like if you're in downtown Austin or downtown San Francisco. But on a national level, and even on a metropolitan level, we are going really, really slowly, and the homes we're building have failed to keep up with the people who need them. I want to ask you about something that in 2021, two economists and a housing advocate coined a phrase called the housing theory of everything. And their argument was that housing shortages have a ripple effect on inequality, climate change, obesity, fertility rates, a lot of things. What are your thoughts on this? I buy it. I think one of the studies that I turn to most often is um, the famous intergenerational study um, by Raj Chetty that concluded that zip code is destiny, basically saying the place where you grow up is the most important thing that will determine your trajectory in life. And that just should put it into high relief, the fact that it is super important that we build houses 
in the places where people can make the highest income, send their kids to the best schools and ensure the best outcomes in life for the next generation. And we have failed at that. So I think there's a lot of ways to look at that failure. One is in terms of social mobility. Another is in terms of climate change, because the homes that do get built tend to be really, really far away from jobs and amenities. You see that in a place like California, right, where like the cities aren't growing at all. They're just getting much more expensive. And all the housing is going into what they call the wildland urban interface, which is exactly the part of the state that is hottest and most prone to wildfires. And you're seeing that, you know, sort of across the board that the housing shortage is pushing people to make the kinds of decisions relative to where they live, when they have kids, how many kids they have, what kind of job they take. Uh, All those decisions stem from housing and uh, people's inability to find affordable housing has become a generator of national migration patterns. That's how bad it has become. Well, let's turn to U.S. Senator Brian Schatz. You wrote an article in Slate about him recently. He's a Democrat, and he represents Hawaii, which is one of the least affordable places in the United States. Senator Schatz shared with you how he got on board with YIMBY, or Yes in My Backyard. And for me, the seminal moment uh, uh, when I became aggressively a Yes in My Backyard person was when I fully understood that Zoning, exclusionary zoning in particular, restrictive covenants, and all of that came right after Jim Crow was outlawed by the Supreme Court of the United States. And the folks that wanted to continue the legacy of Jim Crow figured out a way to do that, which would pass constitutional muster. And so all of that stuff was designed to keep primarily black people out of uh, affluent neighborhoods. And so even though there are a lot of progressives and environmentalists who, you know, uh, invoke the phrase protect the character of our neighborhood. We need to know that that history there is pretty dark. Henry, can you talk more about that dark history that he's referring to? Yeah. So I think we often think about zoning as a concept that regulates where certain types of businesses can operate. So Nobody wants to live next to a stockyard. That's a famous constitutional law case about the validity of zoning, right? Is that people don't want to live next to stockyards um, and they probably don't want to live next to incinerators or landfills or anything like that. So the sort of benevolent theory of zoning is that zoning ensures a separation between industrial land and commercial land and residential land because nobody necessarily wants to to live on top of uh, polluting facilities and all that. But the history of residential zoning in the 20th century, which Senator Schatz is talking about, stems from the fact that the Supreme Court, in a series of cases, went in and told communities that they were not allowed to use zoning to further racial segregation, which is what they had done, right? So first, there was zoning that explicitly said that this neighborhood is for whites and this neighborhood is for blacks. And that was that was the, the, the Jim Crow structure in place in many cities to keep neighborhoods racially segregated. And that was undone by the Supreme Court. And in response, cities came up with a way to enforce the racially segregated zoning that they had constructed without being so explicit uh, in their language. And, and, And the way they did that was they passed ordinances that, for example, banned apartments from entire neighborhoods, established that a home in a certain neighborhood had to exist on a certain size lot, 
And all these provisions helped ensure that the housing in those neighborhoods would be expensive and exclusive and available only to homeowners and not to renters. And all of those things effectively maintained the racial segregation that the Supreme Court had tried to outlaw in 1917. I know what you're talking about. I'm an African-American woman who lives in, on a personal note, a predominantly white neighborhood in Charlotte, North Carolina, that had restricted covenants in the deeds. So when people of all races could finally move in, the, the value had so appreciated that it really priced out a lot of people. So when people say, why is it so white? <laughs> well, there, there's a reason for that. <laughs> uh, Senator Schatz first introduced the bipartisan Yes in My Backyard legislation with co-sponsor U.S. Senator Todd Young, an Indiana Republican back in 2019, and it was included in the appropriations bill for the fiscal year 2023. When you talk to Senator Schatz, he talked about some money, uh, $85 million grant program that's a part of an appropriations bill. And when you interviewed him, he told you there were two ways to look at that. First of all, it's a fair amount of money. Second of all, it's not that much money across the country. But I think the, the, the most important aspect of this is that the federal uh, uh, legislative branch is saying that not only do we need to invest in affordable housing with the federal uh, taxpayer dollar, um, but we also need to use the federal taxpayer dollar to incentivize um, the elimination of barriers to building. Well, let's walk through how the program works for folks who want to access it. How would state and local governments be able to access the funding, the $85 million? Well, the idea is they would apply and they would show the federal government that they've been doing a good job at um, adopting some of the local level policies that fair housing activists have long supported. For example, permitting duplexes in single-family home neighborhoods, or permitting accessory dwelling units, or getting rid of parking requirements, or getting rid of minimum lot sizes. I mean, all these things have been in the fair housing playbook for 50 years. And yet in much of the country, it still remains illegal to build an apartment building. But th there is some skepticism towards this type of initiative. And that skepticism comes from people who say that, yes, building restrictions matter. Yes, we don't build enough housing. But unleashing private developers to build as much housing as they want is never going to take care of folks at the lowest end of the income ladder, and especially not of our uh, homeless neighbors who um, have been blocked out of the housing system entirely. And that's where perhaps cities, you know, the, the counter argument to, to, to Brian Schatz here would be uh, that the federal government ought to be taking a much more active role than simply helping to undo local land use regulations. Well, you asked him about that. You asked him about the grant's approach, offering carrots rather than a stick. And he told you, I think we have to start somewhere. We've created a nationwide shortage of something, and there's a pretty straightforward solution, which is to allow landowners to do, within reason, what they wish to do with their land. And it's true that some jurisdictions are going to be dead-enders, and um, some jurisdictions may never reform their zoning laws, but um, the places that want to grow uh, will grow. And the places that want to yeah. be humane will be humane. Schatz went on to say that one of his goals was to, quote, make sure that the Democratic Party evolves on housing and that in a new progressive vision, we are building clean energy. We're building housing. We're building physical infrastructure. There's nothing intrinsically progressive 
about stopping progress. What was your response to this? Well, I think, you know, he's right that it is time for a perspective shift among Democrats about the housing issue in this country, because I think for a long time, many Democrats have been convinced that this is a demand side problem and that the problem needs to be solved by more public money going into housing support programs. And I don't think Senator Schatz disagrees with that. I think one of his points is that it doesn't matter how much the federal government pours into, for example, housing choice vouchers, which is the number one system of federal rental assistance, if uh, the apartments that those people are going to be renting have become prohibitively expensive because the supply is so constrained. And, and I think that's a good point and, and one that most Democrats probably aren't on board with yet. The other problem, and this is where I think he's perhaps being a bit short-sighted in his assertion that communities that want to grow will grow, is that even if Democrats recognize in the abstract that there is a housing shortage, people remain extremely averse to solving that problem in their own neighborhood. Hence the, you know, not in my backyard acronym, right? Like we're seeing that in New York state right now, where despite controlling the uh, state government from top to bottom, Democrats have been unable to pass this legislation trying to get the suburbs to build more housing. It's just going nowhere. And I think that illustrates the depth of the challenge and the fact of the matter that you cannot just offer these jurisdictions a small pot of money in exchange for building a bunch of low-income housing. It's not going to work. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The future of America is in your hands. This is not a movie trailer, and it's not a political ad, but it is a call to action. I'm Mila Atmos, and I'm passionate about unlocking the power of everyday citizens. On our podcast, Future Hindsight, we take big ideas about civic life and democracy and turn them into action items for you and me. Every Thursday, we talk to bold activists and civic innovators to help you understand your power and your power to change the status quo. Find us at futurehindsight.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd read that Yimby, that's yes in my backyard, started to gain momentum about a decade ago in California. And according to the Brookings Institution, there are now more than 140 Yimby groups across the country. What are some of the ongoing tensions between the NIMBYs and Yimbyism? Well, sure. So I think Yimbyism broadly construed is, I think, pretty unobjectionable in the sense that 
what they're saying is that we have erected a bunch of obstacles to building affordable housing, and now we have a shortage of affordable housing. Who can be surprised by that? I think it's it's pretty hard to argue with that. I think where the, the Yimbis tend to run into opposition is from people who resent their focus on market rate development and say market rate development is only going to serve people who are served by the market, which is to say people with money. And I think that's a fair point. At the end of the day, the answer is probably both and, in the sense that we need to both relax land use regulations and we need more support from the federal government for low-income renters and for the homeless. But with respect to NIMBYs, it's kind of complicated, right? I mean, you got all these different schools of thought. There's definitely a a strain of NIMBYism that is people who are simply looking out for their own interests and in particular their own property values. And they're sitting in uh, wealthy suburban neighborhoods and um, they'll come out to a meeting to uh, raise hell when a developer proposes a low-income housing project or a homeless shelter or frankly even a market rate housing project as long as it doesn't fit with what they uh, deem the character of the neighborhood. And that is, I think, a political philosophy with which which Brian Schatz rightly says is not compatible with other liberal values. Now, there is a, another type of NIMBYism that I think falls into a separate category, which is people in low-income neighborhoods who are concerned about new development bringing displacement and high rents. And they're really two totally different categories, I think. And in some of the states that have tried to liberalize their zoning laws, they've tried to address this. So I think that, you know, if you're in a low-income neighborhood, the na- type of neighborhood, you know, where, where prices are relatively low relative to the rest of the metro area, I understand why people oppose new development in those neighborhoods because they're concerned. They're concerned that that developers are going to start buying up properties, evicting tenants to build new buildings. And they're concerned that those new buildings and the amenities that come with them will raise the rents in in the surrounding properties. And since it is personal when it's about what you perceive to be the value of your home, it's an issue that doesn't necessarily break down along the liberal conservative lines, right? That's right. I think it's it's really complicated, right? Like um, people tend to be opposed to new development in their neighborhoods no matter where they fall on the political spectrum. I think where Brian Schatz has a point here is that what he's doing at the federal level is not so much about money. It's about bringing this message into the heart of democratic politics and saying that the the National Democratic Party can no longer accept a status quo where most neighborhoods refuse to allow even a three-story apartment building to be built. And I think he is, uh, he's right about that. And I think the reason that he wants to tread carefully in Washington, perhaps too carefully, given the urgency of the situation on the ground, is that he thinks that there is the potential for a political coalition around this subject. Because while people may oppose new housing in their neighborhood, whether they're liberal or conservative or rich or poor, There is also a kind of philosophical alignment around the idea that people should be able to build apartments. And I think if you're on the left, you would support the idea of more apartments because um, it allows people to live closer to work, which is good for the climate. It creates more affordable housing, which is a progressive goal, and it creates more diverse neighborhoods. And meanwhile, on the right, which is why I think you have a Republican co-sponsor of this Yes in My Backyard Act, you have people who say, rightly, 
Well, it's my property. Who's to say, why is the government telling me that my property has to be a single family home and I can't build a house out back in the backyard for my aging mother-in-law? And I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument, too, that a lot of people agree with in the abstract. Now, when it comes time to talk about their neighborhood, that's when they get upset. And this is the last thing I'll say about the, the approach at the federal level, is that the big picture on housing reform and getting rid of these regulatory barriers is that it works better when you do it at a higher level of government. When it comes time to decide at the street level or the neighborhood level, people often say no. They don't want change. They're afraid of change. And I think you know there's a possibility that perhaps at the federal level, if housing could be recognized as an issue of federal importance, national importance, which I think it is, that the federal government might be even better equipped than the state's to overwhelm some of these uh, local oppositions and um, and pave the way for some of these barriers to be dismantled. And I think that was the original hope of the Fair Housing Act. So I don't think Brian Schatz is the only person in Washington trying to make this happen. Well, we know one thing, housing costs are soaring. And people actually are leaving cities, sometimes just to get out to some place where they could afford to buy something. Do you think Senator Schatz's grant program has the potential to help turn things around? No, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, it's $85 million. It's, it's $85 million isn't going to even, you know, there are affordable housing developments in major cities that that cost more than that. So, um, you know, like one development. And so it's a small step for fair housing. (laughs) And, um, but, 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 you know, maybe an important one. Will anything turn it around? Boy, you know, I would have said 10 years ago that the housing affordability crisis had become so severe that something had to give. (laughs) And yet 10 years later, here we are, we see that the situation is worse for renters than it's ever been. There's more homeless people than there have been in decades. Houses are, homes are less affordable than they have been possibly ever and certainly in decades. And yet here we are. Uh, still going on as we did before. So I'm not really certain what the answer is, but I, I do hope that as millennials get older and take larger roles in politics, that housing gets elevated as, as, as an issue and especially housing affordability, because I think it's it's obviously a really severe problem. And I think in too much of our politics, it's not recognized as such. I don't want to depress you, but during the pandemic, when people in like Chicago, New York, San Francisco, who could work anywhere did, and they moved to medium to large size cities like Charlotte. And they thought, oh, this is pretty affordable. And don't you know, the rates and the housing costs boosted up so much that people who make a regular salary in Charlotte now can't afford it. Yeah. So the opposite kind of happened. Just the housing prices went up in those places. Right. And I, well, I mean, I suppose, you know, to see the silver lining in that, you would say, well, maybe that'll finally get through to Congress, and I think Senator Brian Schatz realizes this, that this is a national issue. This is no longer an issue that is confined to San Francisco and Boston and New York City. This is an issue that has now come to places like Austin, Charlotte, and Boise, Idaho. These are places that are now starting to see people getting priced out of their homes and and, and seeing home prices rise to the point where they have um, uh, surpassed uh, the ability of somebody who's, who's making a a local salary to afford them. Thank you, Henry Gravar, for coming on What Next? My pleasure. 
Henry Grabar is a staff writer at Slate. Brian Schatz is a U.S. senator from the state of Hawaii. That's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting help from Laura Spencer and Jarrett Downey. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary C. Curtis, columnist at Roll Call and host of the Equal Time Podcast. Find me on Twitter. I'm at mcurtisnc3. Thanks for listening. Talk to you tomorrow. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.